This is the Isaac Kite Show. I am your host, Lord Isaac, your Duke of Decisiveness, your Earl of Exceptionalism, your Marquis de Machismo. Half my brain dead from wokeness, cancel culture, the media, Hollywood, and the left. Talent on loan from the great mover unmoved on condition of excellence, and excellence will greet you in each and every episode of this podcast. Helpful truths, at least from my perspective. A unique perspective that you're going to hear a lot more of today uh, as I continue the Origins of Liberty series, Seed Time of the Republic, talking about uh, what, what happened that brought about the American Revolution uh, and this, this liberty that we, that we love and cherish. Uh, where did all this come from? <clears throat> so here we go. Uh, I want to make a, a little caveat <laughs> Uh, it occurred to me that, you know, at the moment, I happen to be the best-kept secret of uh, those who are, uh, who are uh, looking to escape wokeness and, and trying to get their lives together and, and this kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, the time will come when this podcast and also my other uh, Inside Israel News will garner greater attention and uh, scrutiny. And I just want to make a note that <clears throat> when I say Western civilization, I'm not talking about white people. Right. I'm pretty sure that, you know, it'll be soon that it'll be, you know, this will this will be a white supremacist hot podcast because I'm speaking of Western civilization. Right. And even though I've already made the argument that I think the Arabs are part of Western civilization. Right. That Islam is a Western religion and uh, and all of that. So, you know, but describing Western civilization as the confluence of various Mediterranean traditions right? Uh, Roman organization and militarism, Greek science and philosophy, Jewish morality, all these things came together and created a bedrock, a foundation upon which Western civilization is built. And uh, that, you know, that, that's the point that I'm trying to make, that liberty grows out of that within the Western tradition and within the Anglo-American tradition in particular. Uh, there's something about this particular tradition that, uh, that is different. <laughs> from the others. So, uh, you know, when, when people from other civilizations and other traditions come to the West, and especially to Britain and, and the United States, uh, they integrate into our society. They become Westerners, right? It has nothing to do with their race. Uh, and, you know, people are, oh, we're so oppressed. Yeah, you know, uh, East Asians come to America and have better earning power, better education, and all that kind of thing uh, than... Uh, native-born Americans do because, you know, we're all racist and, and life is horrible, you know? I mean, it, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Come on, people. Uh, in any case, uh, there's much diversity and uh, such in Western civilization. Now, given that, Western civilization has also spread out all around the world uh, to the far corners of the world. Everywhere on Earth has been touched by Western civilization at one point or another. I will grant that, uh, obviously, uh, not all of that was positive. Some of that was colonization, right? Uh, colonial powers went out and conquered territories and incorporated them into their empires and uh, took raw materials from them that uh, uh, allowed them to have cheaper manufacturers back in the home country, so on and so forth. Uh, we're all familiar with that history, okay? But... Uh, we're not the only uh, civilization in the world that's engaged in empire and uh, that has colonized different places. Uh, if you go to Asia and you do DNA testing, you will find that some massive percentage of people in Asia are related to Chinggis Khan. 
better known as Genghis Khan by those who, who don't know the proper pronunciation. But in any case, Chinggis Khan conquered a huge swath of northern Asia. And today you can find his DNA from Ukraine to China. You know, all over the place, this man's DNA is there because they, uh, they killed a lot of the men and uh, had their way with a lot of the women, right? Uh, so, you know, they colonized quite literally with their own people, with their own DNA, all over those regions and ruled over them for centuries. So, you know, what, what, what makes Westerners so evil that, you know, we're the only ones who are responsible for colonization anyway? Okay, so <laughs> anyway, I'm not I'm not here to talk about that, but I, I just want to make the point that you know Western Civ does not mean white people necessarily, uh, and when you look out there, you know, in terms of Western ideologies, like China, China is one of the places in the world that that fancies the West the least, right? They're always you know we, we don't like Westerners, Westerners are corrupt and decadent, uh, and yet China is communist. China has adopted and converted to the most modern large scale. Western religion, Marxism, right? So, I mean, here they are living by, Mar by, by Marxist Western religious ideology. Uh, and uh, uh, this, you know, this, this is supposed to be West. The West is bad, except for, you know, the West's newest religion, you know, which is definitely not our, uh, you know, our best export. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not, not the best idea Westerners ever came up with, but <clears throat> it's there. So, uh, you know, Western Civ is not a white thing. Everywhere is the West now. The West is dominant culturally in the world. Uh, and when you look at a lot of civilization, I mean, obviously, you know, India had a huge impact on Western civilization. Uh, we, from our numbers to a lot of our ideological uh, and, and intellectual concepts, uh, India had a huge impact on Persia, which, of course, had a major influence on the West. Uh, and... So on and so forth. So, you know, Rome and, and China knew of each other. The Romans were talking about, you know, how they, they bought silk that ultimately came from this place called Qin. And uh, the Chinese are, are talking about this place called Rum. Uh, eventually, uh, some monks brought back to the Byzantine Empire some silk uh, silkworm eggs, and they were able to make silk of their own. Uh, but originally, all the silk in, that we find in the West was bought from China. So these cultures knew about each other. They influenced each other. So that does blur the lines a little bit. But what I'm talking about Western Civ <clears throat> and this ideology of liberty, yes, I'm talking about Europe, I'm talking about Britain in particular, and then America. And it it obviously is derived from, you know, Western white I don't like these racial terms. They're really kind of stupid. But anyway, uh, you know, Western ideology, Western belief systems, Western ways of life, uh, European ideas, uh, Northern European and Western European in particular. And then, you know, this all comes to America. Uh, and something, you know, well, I'll, I'll cover it a little later, but something changes when the ideology gets to America. Something kind of radical happens. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll go there here in just a minute. Okay, Seed Time of the Republic. This is the title of a book by the great Clinton Rossiter. And if I haven't sung his praises enough in this series, I'm going to sing them again because he's the greatest uh, American scholar of civics uh, of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he wrote in the 40s and 50s. And of course, those who followed him came from the revisionist school and the Marxist school, and uh, their work has just never been as good. 
Uh, no one is as good at describing civics as uh, Clinton Rossiter. And what's amazing uh, is how this man resisted the trends of his time, right? Uh, he lived in a time when a lot of scholars were interested in Marxism and leftism. He's never really interested in that. And he says as much in his books, you know, that it, it's been kind of an odd coincidence that as an intellectual and a, and a college professor and a uh, you know teacher in his time that he, he was just never interested in those ideas. Uh, he wasn't especially conservative. The post-World War II era was a time of incredible, I want to say, civic conservatism in America. We, we had this idea that our institutions had triumphed over the world. We were the greatest people ever. And, you know, all of our institutions were perfect and, and this kind of thing. A little bit, we were a little bit dogmatic about our system, which had its, has its ups and downs. I mean, obviously, our system has some great pros. It has a few cons, too. And we should be objective about that. And Rossiter is able to be even in the time when people were, you know, dogmatic. So he resists the dogmatism of America's the greatest ever and everything's perfect. And he also resists leftist nonsense about, oh, you know, people, you know, America's evil. And so that is uh, an important thing. But his book, Seed Time of the Republic, is really profound. And it's important read for anyone. If you really want to understand America... If you want to know what America is all about, where we came from, what we are, how we got to where we are, seed time of the Republic. As a brief synopsis, because it's important to what I'm going to be talking about here, uh, I've kind of worked through Western Civ, not, not you know, pervasively. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to cover everything. Uh, it would be wonderful to, to go into a debate about, you know, individualism and collectivism in early Holy Roman Empire uh, or in France versus, you know, in England. But obviously we, we really need to focus in here if I want to get to American liberty on some very specific circumstances. Um, but we got to, to Britain. And, uh, you know, by the you know, late 16th, early 17th century, you know, I, I talked a little bit about Edward Cook, who had this idea of uh, independent institutions, right? Uh, we start getting uh, people like, uh, like Hobbes and Locke who are just, what, what, is the, what is the purpose of government? Why do we have government? What is government's job? What's its role in our lives and our society? How much injustice should we tolerate from government? Uh, should government be unjust at all? Should we tolerate any injustice, right? <laughs> what, are, what are we doing with this government thing anyway? And meanwhile, you know, the, the monarchy is still trying to maintain this idea of, you know, uh, divine right to rule, um, which doesn't go so well in the middle of the 17th century because England has a civil war. Uh, there's the Scottish Revolution. Uh, the English rise up. The Irish Confederacy, right? There's, there's a rebellion in Ireland. I'm not really going to call that one a revolution, but basically there's a revolution in England and a revolution in Scotland that don't quite stick. They, have a, they make a lot of progress, but they don't stick. And they do drive not necessarily individual liberty as a concept, but collective liberty. But basically, the Scots assert in the, in the National Covenant, there go the Covenanter cause in the late 1630s, early 1640s, uh, that, that the Kirk, the church, is the way it should be. And they get rid of the bishops and they say, no, we're not taking the king's prayer book. We're not, we're not taking any external influences. The church is the way we want it, right? And Scotland is the way we want it. And we're going we're gonna to govern it. And we just want the king to accept that. You know, this is this is Scotland now. Uh, and they start kind of policing their own society and managing Scotland for themselves without the king's officials. And Charles, of course, being Charles doesn't compromise. But but the point is, you know, th there are these assertions made, right, that 
there's a certain liberty of the communities there to stand for themselves, to speak for themselves and say, we liked our church the way it is. Thank you very much. And so, lad, you can take a hike, <laughs> right? <laughs> Get out of Scotland. Um, and so then, you know, the English rise up against Charles as well. And the whole kingdom goes into a mess. And the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, the English Civil War, all kinds of problems that result. But out of that comes this this tricky, sticky thing. Even though the monarchy comes back, for a brief time, the English toyed with this concept of republicanism. Do we have to have a king, right? Does government require a king? And we've already had Hobbes and Locke out there about, you know, do, well, what is the role of government to protect us from a violent death, Hobbes says, and we should tolerate whatever we have to tolerate in order to, to maintain order. Rule of law must come first. And then Locke says, no, well, you know, life, liberty, and property. Government should protect our lives, our liberty, and our, our private property. And that's the role of government. And government should be just, right? And we started going back and forth. And a lot of people are asking these kinds of questions. What happens if we don't have a king? What happens if we elect our leaders? What happens if more people have the, the franchise, have the vote? We have Baruch Spinoza, as I mentioned before, who's come up with this concept of democratic republicanism. What if the people at large having sufficient education, you know, knowing more than they knew at their time, but becoming more middle class, basically. He kind of predicts this idea. What if people become more middle class, essentially, and that group of people take over the body politic? Radical idea there. I mean, you know, like I was joking uh, last time, you know, what, what are you smoking, Baruch? Uh, you know, lay off the hashish. So, <laughs> you know, these ideas are percolating out there and they're radical. They're out there, you know, getting rid of the king. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, a lot of the people who are not happy with the restoration in England make their way to the Americas, uh, where they can have greater religious freedom. And a, a, a wonderful thing happens as the population grows. Uh, by the time of uh, the Declaration of Independence, the American population will grow to about three million. Right. But as the population's growing and, and as the as the the coastal region is becoming more settled and people are starting to move inland a little bit. Uh, Americans are living thousands of miles from Britain. They're looking after themselves, right? They're running their farms, their plantations, sadly, with slavery. Uh, you know, the crown, of course, is profiting massively from the slave trade at this point. They've kind of, uh, you know, in the 18th century, England basically steals the slave trade from the Portuguese and the Spanish. And, uh, you know, the English take it over and the Dutch and they take it over. Right. I'm going to talk about slavery in depth soon, because, of course, um, as after I've had a chance to describe, you know, the foundations of American liberty, we're going to have to have a conversation about counter liberty, counter revolution, right? Every time you have a revolution, there's a counter revolution. There's, you know, there's an opposite. There are people who just will not come along with the program, right? Good, bad, or otherwise. Anyway, uh, so seed time of the Republic. Rossiter talks at length about social economic and political changes in the Americas that are revolutionary and that by the time we declared independence had already made and, and already constituted an American revolution, right? The American revolution happened in the decades leading up to our war of independence. And that's why I refer to it as the war of independence rather than revolution. The American revolution were the cultural political and economic changes that took place in the or largely in the 18th century leading up to 
our Declaration of Independence. And what happened? really amazing and it, I, I cannot lay it out with the eloquence that Rossiter does in his book because he's very thorough uh, but generally speaking uh, when it comes to various issues like religion right in, in Britain you have a national church the Church of England well the Church of England exists in the colonies as well but it just doesn't have the authority that it has in England and there are people you know if you want to be a Methodist if you want to be a Presbyterian if you want to uh, worship at the Scottish Kirk right if you want to, uh, oh my, my God, I mean Catholics, holy mackerel, right? Even the, the, the Catholics derided and, and much belittled and hated as they are in England, right? Uh, and, and persecuted there. You know, we have this whole colony of Maryland uh, that was is kind of a Catholic refuge in the Americas. Uh, one of my early ancestors who actually stayed in the Americas, uh, I had ancestors who came here before, but were the... Uh, the Smallwoods from Cheshire who moved to Maryland because they were Catholic and they saw the writing on the wall in 1638-1639 about uh, war coming in in England and they said no we're getting out of here we're getting while the getting's good (laughs) Uh, so uh, you know there's uh, greater liberty people are not able to because of of the way America was kind of set up there's no way for anyone to enforce a religion. And so religion, religious tolerance isn't just an ideological thing. And, and yes, Americans do embrace this concept during this time. Of They're proud of it. Benjamin Franklin brags about it. Coming to him soon. Uh, that, you know, in the Americas, people can believe according to their conscience. Right? The, the society is not set up to compel anyone to attend a church service. <clears throat> people can do believe as they please, pray as they please. Uh you know, you have small Jewish settlements in America at the time. And, and you know, since Jews are not even Christians, right? Not, not Catholics at least are one form or another of Christianity, right? <clears throat> uh, you know, there are small Sephardic or I should say Middle Eastern Jewish communities that are set up in Rhode Island and Georgia. And then uh, small numbers of German Jews, German descended and Dutch descended Jews. Uh, during the, the English Civil War, the English invited the Jews back in. I mentioned, uh, you know, Way back in Edward I, the Jews were expelled from England. So the the Jews who come to England in the uh, mid-17th century, they're all uh, Dutch. They have Dutch-German names. That's why, you know, if you think of a Jewish person in America or Britain, you're, you're thinking of somebody who has a name like Roth or Silverman or Meyer or, you know, something along these kinds of names that, uh, you know, Greenberg, Greenspan, you know, these are, these are the kinds of names because the, the Jews who came to England were Jews who had come from these recently from Germany, the Netherlands and and so on and so forth. Uh, you do not find, um, you know, Jews had not been in England long enough to have taken on more English names. Right. And so there are very few, uh, and this wouldn't have been the case if Edward the first hadn't expelled the Jews. Um, you know, it's probable that there would have been Jews with more English-sounding names. But, you know, anyway, <laughs> the point is, you know, German Jews and German-descended Jews start to make their way to America as well and find, you know, again, a very tolerant and open society. They're fairly welcoming. Now, is there anti-Semitism? Is there anti-Catholic sentiment? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. Uh, <clears throat> but again, there's not the kind of social enforcement that we see back in Europe, Right. They, they don't have the, the will 
to hold down groups of people based on their religion. And while that becomes de facto, that is, that becomes the reality for these people, uh, it also becomes a point of pride. Slowly but surely, Americans start bragging about this. That it's not just that we have religious tolerance because no one can really enforce religious uh, conformity. It's that we believe in religious freedom. Wow, what a thing. And if you're familiar with the history of Europe, especially of Britain, and you, you study the history of the English Civil War and what have you, Oh my God! You know it's 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 the the king trying to to push what what the Puritans and and uh, dissenters will call uh, Arminianism, which is after this Dutch priest uh, that uh, you know is, is essentially Diet Catholicism, right? And then uh, William Laud and and the uh, the Laudian uh, faction there, they're using the bishops. The Episcopals, right? Episcopalianism is what we call the Church of England in America, right? The Episcopalian Church, Episcopal Church. Uh, so, you know, you have these five. And then, and then the, you have the Scots, the, the Scottish Kirk, which is Presbyterian because of uh, a Calvinist named John Knox, right? So now they want the church governed at the local level. And then you have independents who are, you know, the largely Puritan. You know, they're various factions of very radical Protestants, seekers like uh, Oliver Cromwell and the diggers and the levelers and other radical groups, but largely Puritans, which is a derisive term that was given them by their opponents, which is why I'm increasingly using the term Arminian, uh, which was the derisive term the Puritans gave to Laud. Uh, I had always referred to them as Episcopalians because it's just easier that way, because they were defending the bishops and the idea of having bishops so that you could have this top-down church, whereas the Presbyterians are pushing for a bottom-up church and the independents, the Puritans, are pushing for greater freedom of conscience because they want to continue to pursue more radical and divergent religious thought. You know, they're reading the Bible and they're saying, I don't see anything about bishops in here, uh, but I do see things about being moral and, and following these rules and, and not, you know, not misbehaving, not, not being promiscuous and, you know, not committing adultery. Like there's, there's these things in here that, that clarify what a healthy society looks like. And healthy moral behavior. And we're not sure the church is promoting that, right? So they're out promoting their own thing. Okay, so in America, we just settle on this idea that you do you. And religion isn't the only place where this manifests, but also in economics. People will engage in voluntary transactions with them. Farmers will sell food and uh, and uh, uh, people will, will sell newspapers. They, it, it kind of becomes an early form of free market capitalism. There's still a lot of barter going on, um, but, you know, more voluntary transactions. And then there's politics. Increasingly, decisions are being made by the community. People get together at these uh, town hall meetings and everyone gets to have their say. Right. We have this growing freedom of speech. You know, I come to the town. Hall, I don't want this tax because I can't I, I can barely afford to pay my property taxes now. And you guys want to do all this grand stuff. And it sounds great. But what about those of us who are struggling to pay our taxes? And somebody Isaac's right. No, we don't want to pay higher taxes Then somebody else gets out. Look, our roads are terrible. and We need to do this. You know, we have this debate. And then as a community, we make a decision. And in such circumstances, everyone's been heard. And if the community makes the decision, let's say we go with the tax and then and the whole thing goes bust, the whole thing becomes a mess, uh, everyone's going to be like, you know what? Isaac told us this was going to be a bad idea, right? People were listening. They're hearing each other. Decisions are not being made by, well, the king says, 
we're going to raise taxes and build these roads and do all this stuff. People are making these decisions amongst themselves and they're making them more collegially and they're trying to build consensus, right? Because obviously, if the people who want to promote the tax can convince me that it's in my best interest, even though I'm struggling to pay my taxes, yes, but Isaac, you'll have better roads. I mean, look, you, you use the roads all the time. You know, if they can make the argument to me and if I remain steadfast, then they might moderate their position a little bit. But in any case, these communities are making these decisions farther out into the frontier People are just making decisions for themselves. You might get together with your two or three neighbors and say, uh, you know, we're, we're all going to hunt on this land over here and we're going to farm on this land. So we're not going to clear that forest. You know, you get this kind of thing going on. People just coming together and working things out with their neighbors. It's a curiosity of the early uh, American Republic that um, they had to force people to be sheriffs. You know, there was like a lottery. You, you, were, you had to be drafted. Nobody wanted to be the sheriff. Nobody wanted to enforce the law. Nobody wanted to use this authority. And in order to have authority, in order to have a rule of law, they actually had to force people to be sheriffs, right? So people are doing this. Now, then that goes up to the colony level. So when I'm back from the break, we'll talk about, uh, you know, the colonial political situation and uh, the kind of political revolution that happens as these various and sundry communities collectively represent themselves at the colony level. Years ago, I saw the writing on the wall and moved out of California. Let me tell you, with the high cost of living, high taxes, high regulations, high crime, it was no place to run a business and certainly no place to raise children. Now with all the mandates and lockdowns, it's become unbearable. So if you're looking to make your way to a red state like I did and enjoy the, the breath of freedom that you get in the red state life, then I want you to call my friend Paul Chabot at Conservative Move, conservativemove.com. Paul and his uh, associates at Conservative Move help people get relocated from blue states to red states, whichever red state you're interested in moving to, conservativemove.com. Or you can call 800-277-5487, 800-277-5487. Let Paul and the folks at Conservative Move get you set up in the breath of free air in red state America. Now that we're back from the break, uh, continue with the talk about the American Revolution and, and what was actually revolutionary about it. Uh, we're talking about the politics and, uh, you know, these communities now are having town hall meetings, uh, neighbors are working together on uh, common problems. You know, if we want a road, you know, I might just, you know, you know, there are 10 farms there. We might just get a few of the people together who are in the farm. We'll just build a road, you know, together uh, by doing, you know, by deciding that all of us, you know, collectively and, and this kind of thing. People are making decisions, civic decisions amongst themselves and in small communities. Well, they're also representing themselves at the colony level. Most of the colonies, when they were first founded, were not crown colonies. They were private colonies, like Pennsylvania, which was owned by the Penn family, right? William Penn. And uh, these, you know, so there, there was a lot of back and forth between the private owners of the colony and the colonists themselves. Uh, and uh, the private owners, of course, appointed the governor. And that's kind of thing. That's a fun history don't don't have time to go into now, but you know if you really want to learn about that, that can be that is a really uh, 
it's an amazing story, the back and forth with the pens. Uh, but over time, the private colonies slowly become crown colonies. The difference between a private colony and a crown colony, a crown colony, the king appoints the governor, and the king appoints the upper house, the house of counselors in uh, the, the colony. And these colonies are a lot like states, because that's what they're going to transform into. The, um, the colonies each have, early on in their development, this colonial assembly, or, you know, in Virginia, they start with the House of Burgess, and then that becomes the House of Delegates. Today, the lower house of the state of Virginia, state legislature is called the House of Delegates. Um, these legislative bodies start to form, right? And uh, ultimately, you know, most of them will be called assemblies in New York. Massachusetts is the state assembly. Uh, and so at this time, the colonial assembly, and so that's kind of how we refer to these as the colonial assemblies. They'll elect people. Again, just like in England, the franchise is not available to everyone. We're talking about landed gentry, people who own a certain amount of land, have a certain amount of money. You are, you know, by, by class distinction, you enter the, um, the voting class. The theory of voting at that time was not our theory of voting, which is, you know, one person, one vote. They had this concept that the, um, the people who voted were voting on behalf of their the people who work for them. So if I'm a plantation owner, I'm voting on behalf of my artisans and I'm voting on behalf of my slaves. And I'm voting on behalf of my wife and my children and these kinds of things. And I have to be responsible for everyone. The concept seems ridiculous to modern years because of course, years later, we've progressed. We have made changes. We, we now women vote for themselves, right? Uh, we made progress, but at the time women didn't vote. And as a result, you know, that was, that was their theory. And that's the wonderful thing about history is you can come back and understand that and see, you know, the progress we made from there to here, right? Uh, and this idea that we make progress. The societies are not fixed. Interesting idea. Where did that come from? Hmm. Uh, Western civilization has this sort of overriding thought of like linear progression, that we are moving forward in, in a certain direction. A lot of other cultures and, and societies have this idea of circular Right, that, that everything comes back around, everything stays the same, right? <clears throat> There's no progress through time. But we, we strongly have this idea that, you know, life progresses and changes. Certainly in America, all right? Uh, so these colonial assemblies, these lower houses, are representing the people at large, the landowners, the, you know, the, the gentry, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But they're representing someone. Right. Again, not just the king says and you do. Uh, and slowly but surely, this develops into a form of we could call it nascent sort of proto-democracy or proto-republican democratic republicanism that uh, Spinoza was talking about. Uh, let's just say that the the seed is there. It's planted and it, it's, you know, beginning to germinate. We're, we're going to get the, the roots coming soon. But the de facto situation in America has created religious liberty, greater political liberty, and social equality, right? When you go out and you're with your 10 neighbors way out in the middle of nowhere in central Pennsylvania, far from the king, far from civilization, far from Oxford and Liverpool and London, right? Far from the, the centers of society, right? You're way out there looking out for yourself. Nobody cares where you came from. Right? Nobody cares if you're Catholic. 
That might, that might make a little bit of a difference, but you know, it's like, yeah, my neighbor over there across the way, he's Catholic. And the, the guy on the other side of the river, he's, he's Methodist. And you know, then th- this guy over here, you know, he's uh, Presbyterian. You know, who cares? Right. We're, we're all out here surviving. You know, these things don't matter as much and not just because of the environment, but the environment reinforces a belief, right? The beliefs reinforce the environment, the environment reinforces the belief. Revolutionary thought here, okay? The biggest social change is that nobility is irrelevant. Now that's big because in Europe, nobility still means something at this time. And so you look at the, 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 the people who founded America, none of them are highborn or descended from highborn people. It's, it's the adventurers, it's the, the poor and, the, and the, the struggling and criminal, petty criminals and, and people looking to make it, make it rich quick. Those are the people who moved to the colonies, right? Uh, frontiersmen, pioneers, right? People who pushed the, the limits of civilization. And as I talk, I'll talk about it in the future, like half of them died more than half in a lot of cases, uh, from tropical diseases and the, the tough environment and starvation. And, you know, it was, it was hellish, especially at first. Now, by the time we get to the late 1800s, like the late seven, uh, the late 18th century, excuse me, the late 1700s, late 18th century, we have cities like Philadelphia and, and New York that are burgeoning. And so there's some comfortable urban life. Okay. But it's still, you know, pretty, you know, still pretty difficult. Life is still a a struggle. So we've had this massive change in society. There are no nobles. Everyone is equal, right? We have this manifested in the political decision-making, right? That we're we're doing so as a community. And Isaac's voice means no more than Joe's, right? Everyone's relatively equal. Now, if a large number of people agree with one or the other, a, a voice might, I want to say, <coughs> a voice might rise above the, the throng, if you will, uh, as a factional leader, right? You know, like generally this group of farmers on this side of the river don't really like what the farmers on the other side of the river are doing. And so they have two leaders who kind of go at each other. But for the most part, everyone's equal. No one is above anyone else. And if everyone decides that they're tired of having this person speaking for them, they get rid of that person, right? Society has changed. This is very different from Europe, but no one in Europe understands this. They think these people are just these hokey, podunk, rednecks, uh, hicks, you know, out in the country, out in the sticks, you know, uh, you know, these, these people as primitive provincial, right? These Americans, right? Um, they don't, they don't see these people as having any real value. They don't really respect them. Okay. Because they're not like Europeans. And that's the point. That was the American Revolution, right? All those social, economic, and political changes. Freedom, individual liberty, respect for the individual, social equality. All of these things were the de facto reality in 1776. That was how Americans lived. And nobody back in Europe really understood that. And so as we get into this big dispute, these, this political dispute between the colonies and uh, the mother country, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Now, into this situation, enter the first American, right? And, and I like to call him that because this is the generation, his generation was the generation that began living in this revolution, really living in it. Uh, and this first American is Benjamin Franklin. 
uh, entrepreneur, tinkerer, inventor, uh, writer, philosoph, intellectual, right? <clears throat> ben Franklin is so many things. He is, he is so fundamental to America and he's so eccentric. And you, know, you look at it, he's, he's a really great character, a fun guy to learn about. And, you know, Ben Franklin makes a name for himself very early on in his scientific pursuits uh, over electricity and uh, the study of what is electricity and where does it come from and how does it work? These kinds of things, right? And uh, other scientific projects and inventions that he has. He's, he's become famous already. People back in Britain have taken notice of him. Uh, and at different times, he will travel back to Britain and ingratiate himself in the social clubs there and become, uh, you know, being a novelty, being this famous American, uh, he will become the face of America. And that's why I think it's safe to call him the first American. Obviously, there were others in America living the American lifestyle at this time. But this was the man, the man who gave everyone their first impression of what an American was and what a representative to have, what a man to have as, quote, the first American, right, for everyone to see fascinating character uh, and uh, uh, living this life of freedom. You know, he, he didn't necessarily claim to a religion. Uh, when he was on his deathbed, he was asked, you know, are, are, do you believe in, in Jesus? Right. For example, and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to find out soon enough for myself. So I just won't comment. And uh, when he died, his funeral procession was led by a reverend, a priest and a rabbi. So there was this greater feeling, uh, especially among the deists of the time, that there was a greater unity, that we, we all essentially believe the same things, even though we believe differently. Uh, we believe in morality. We believe in, in the, you know, the fundamentals of the Bible. And it's not necessary to dwell on the things that make us different. Let's work together and let's, let's live in a, a free society, right? Ben Franklin, great man. And, uh, Things are, things are kind of moving along as we get into the middle of the 18th century when the Americas hit their very first major international crisis. Um, and this is, this is where everything just blows up. <laughs> oh, it's, it's kind of exciting to think about it because you, this is where this revolution first starts to be noticed. Some Europeans begin to see it. They're not happy about it. Um, and they certainly don't really quite understand it, and they certainly don't understand its implications. Um, but, uh, but it's there. In the uh, mid-18th century, there were a number of conflicts going on around the Americas, uh, especially with the Native Americans, uh, in particular with the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederation was a number of tribes. Typically, we count seven. Some people have other different numbers, includes the Seneca, the Mohawk, a number of other tribes that had joined this confederacy. And uh, again, I don't have time to go down that rabbit hole, but the Iroquois Confederacy has a lot of influence on future America as well. Uh, Native Americans, the civilized, settled Native Americans on the East Coast, for example, uh, had a lot of interesting ideas about equality and this kind of thing. You know, you generally it was understood that you know, you couldn't tell a man what to do and that decisions should be made collectively. They had referenda on different issues like going to war and this kind of thing uh, and, and bu consensus building. Right. And, and the idea that, you know, the, the chiefs weren't really, you know, they weren't despots over their tribes. OK, 
uh, those ideas had a lot of impact on the Americas. So all the people, you know, that talk about somehow Americans just hating natives and this kind of thing. Um, like, you know, Americans learned a lot from the Native Americans. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, these learning process wasn't always pleasant and there was a lot of fighting. Uh, but we learned a lot. Uh, the Native Americans, of course, saw the, the growing European colonization of the area and the growing European populations, and they understood that this wasn't necessarily good for them. And so, obviously, that, that led to a lot of conflict as well. In any case, ongoing conflicts with various tribes, especially the Mohawk, uh, led the British government to call together a convention in Albany in 1754. And it's kind of interesting timing because we're just about to have this geopolitical blow-up uh, that's going to happen here in just a few years. But uh, they want, the British want to kind of end some of these Native American wars, satisfy the natives, and, and, you know, get create peace. So they gather seven colonies represented who, uh, you know, border on or, or have some of the, the Iroquois land in their territories. The Iroquois had this massive empire in, you know, upstate New York, all the way down to Ohio, and uh, they had shoved a number of tribes westward, uh, so you'll you'll find uh, at the time that, you know, tribes like, say, the Osage, the Wasaji, had been driven from their homes further west. And then that drove other tribes further west and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there, there was a lot of movement. You get these people who talk about, you know, well, this tribe lived here and this tribe lived here before the uh, Columbus arrived. And not necessarily like all people around the world, people moved, people migrated, empires expanded, tribes were forced to move here and move there, and, and a lot of things changed when the horse arrived uh, with the Spanish, right? Uh, tribes that had been weak and, and pitiful, uh, like the Comanche, uh, suddenly were the masters of vast empires, right? Because of the horse, right? And their, and their mastery of it. So in any case, they, they get this this group of colonies together and the colonies are uh, going to negotiate some kind of a deal with the Mohawk and, and, and work it out. And they do ultimately come to a, an agreement with a, with a treaty. Uh, this is where Ben Franklin in the Pennsylvania Gazette publishes this cartoon of a snake cut into different pieces that was uh, these seven colonies, right? And, uh, you know, it said, uh, unite or die. Right. And it was interesting uh, concept. This is the first time the snake is brought in as imagery for the colonies and, and America. And so this, this is sort of the forerunner of the don't tread on me flag. Uh, and this this Albany Convention, when they get together, the, the colonies delegates work out the, the issue with the Mohawk and, and come up with the treaty. But they also go a step farther and propose a political union for the Americas called the Albany Plan. This idea had been discussed a number of times before. Ben Franklin himself had rung in on the concept. Uh, and the idea was basically that the colonies themselves would contribute representatives to a general council. And the, the British government, the king, essentially, his, his ministers, would send a president general who would sit over this body. And the, the two working together would govern the colonies. And this had a lot of benefits. First of all, you would have one policy for North America. Right. And dealing with the Native Americans, you wouldn't have to get seven colonies together to make a treaty with one tribe. You could just have this one institution make the treaty and then the colonies would be bound by it. And also uh, it would generate greater understanding, communication and 
compromise between the ministry, the king's ministers, the king's uh, bureaucracy, you know, his, his government, the state, and the colonists, right? It would create one body for that. It would also weaken the power of individual colonies where uh, a lot of the, uh, let's just say the colonial governors, especially those appointed by the king, were not very popular. And uh, there was a lot of chafing. You know, and so obviously the colonial governments saw that this would lead to a diminu uh, diminution of their own powers and and they did not support it. Uh, and obviously the crown had no cause to support it either. But you ask yourself, you look at this kind of talking here, what what's going on? Colonists are talking about pulling it together. This is this is interesting. Something's going on here, right? There's there's this idea that's growing of America. Right. Nascent idea. Very, very beginnings. And, you know, people are still, you know, I'm a South Carolinian. I'm, you know, North Carolinian. I'm, I'm a Massachusetts. You know, I'm I'm a Connecticut, you know, person from Connecticut. I'm a Rhode Islander. I'm a New Yorker. Right. Not still, uh, but maybe we're a part of something a little bit bigger. Right. It's starting to grow. And, and you have to wonder, had that system been set up, you know, if the if the crown had accepted that, if they'd created that general council and, and united all of the colonies together, uh, would we still be part of the Commonwealth? Would we still have the Queen uh, on our throne? Would I end each podcast with God save the Queen? Yeah, if you hear those words come from my lips, it's only a soccer chant <laughs> when uh, when the English team scores. And sometimes I'm, I'm rooting for the English team. You know, you, your soccer chant is to shout, God save the Queen! But, you know, other than that soccer chant, obviously, uh, you know, here in America, we don't have a queen. We don't have royalty. And we'd really rather the royals just kind of stay in their country and to their own business. Uh, you know, Harry and Meghan can can go. <laughs> Afida Zane, goodbye. You know, don't come back. We uh, we got rid of the royal family centuries ago. <laughs> anyway, so so we have this going on. Uh, and, and this idea of America and this idea of pulling it together politically, these aren't new, right? But also you see in that a, another reflection in the mirror of this social revolution, this economic revolution, this political change that has happened in America of greater equality, uh, greater liberty, and not just the reality of those things, but the idea of those things that you can't coerce people. And that if you do coerce people, it has to be for a just cause. Obviously, if someone commits a murder, we have to punish that person. Right? We can't let someone get away with murder. If someone commits a crime, we have to punish them. Uh, but if people are not committing crimes, law-abiding people should be allowed to do what they want to do, right? Within certain tolerances, within the boundaries of what is responsible. Okay, obviously you don't want to be hurting other people. But your independent freedom to live within your own bounds, choose your own church, uh, make your own decisions. These things are now your right. Not just, not just this idea. Oh, you know what? You can choose your church, but you know what? We may, we may all have to conform one day. No, we're, we have the idea. You have a right to that. You have a right to choose to to pray according to your conscience, and no one can take that right from you. You'd almost say those rights come from a higher authority, endowed by our Creator. So. Uh, Americans begin to believe in this equality, begin to believe in the results of their revolution uh, spiritually to a certain degree. It's ingrained. It is their reality. 
It is now their ideology. It is now their belief system. They believe in it as much as they believe in God and the Bible, which is, you know, in the 18th uh, century was very powerful. Uh, those beliefs were very powerful. This is America now. And again, Europeans don't understand this. Uh, all right. Enter geopolitics because, you know, of course they do. Uh, as the 18th century is going along, there is a growing power struggle in Europe, right? France has colonies. France is growing in power. France is growing in influence and especially a presence in the Mediterranean. They have a presence in uh, the Caribbean and they're growing in power. And the British are, you know, they slowly become the dominant colonial power out of Europe. Uh, the French and the British now have this tension. Something has to happen that's going to resolve this, right? And as I've alluded to with negotiating with Indian tribes, there's a lot of problems in the Americas between the French colonists who are more pro-Indian, the pro-native, right, and the native tribes that are supporting them. So the, the French are agitating with the Native Americans against the English colonists. Now, everyone can see the writing on the wall. They can see the number of colonists coming to the Americas. They can see the growth and population. Protestants have a lot of children. And there's, the French colonists in North America are not able to keep up. And so there's this growing recognition that there's going to be a conflict betwixt the two. And so enter the Seven Years' War. Uh, Britain and France have this war for seven years, mostly in the colonies, not so much in Europe. And, uh, and it's broader than that. I, I, I mean, obviously for Americans who call this the French and Indian War, the focus is on what happened in North America. And what happens in North America is, is an important front of the conflict. But we're talking about a larger geopolitical question. Uh, the Prussians kind of switch sides in alliances, and now they're aligned with the British. Uh, the Russians are, are aligned one way, and then the new Tsar takes office, and they are aligned the other way. Uh, Austria is in this. Spain is in this. Spain tries to invade Portugal. There's, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the Seven Years' War that uh, very much, I want to say, presages the Napoleonic Wars. A lot of those battlegrounds are, those battle lines are being drawn now that will uh, make up the uh, tectonic plates, the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the seismic fissures, the fault lines of the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars. In any case, uh, Europeans are working all that out back in Europe. But in the Americas, the key issue is uh, we're, we're having this conflict with the French and the Native Americans. And the colonies put together militias to support the British army, and they go out and they start uh, agitating against, you know, they're, they're they, they claim they're defending themselves against the French. There's a little bit of agitation, there's a little bit of back and forth. You can argue this a number of different ways. Uh, but, you know, the French are certainly uh, hostile, and, the, and their native allies are certainly hostile to the British. Now, the name is a little bit of the war, the French and Indian War, is a little bit misleading because a lot of the Native Americans were on the side of the Americans, of the colonists, right? The British colonists. Uh, they had a lot of allies. And so you have this, this conflict where the French and some tribes are on their side and the English and some tribes on their side and they're going at each other. It's far more complicated than the name implies. 
okay. But in any case, at first it's just mild agitation. And then at uh, the Battle of Jumonville Glen in uh, uh, 1754, George Washington, a, a young Lieutenant Colonel George Washington leading a, a militia unit uh, along with some other Native Americans, ambushes a uh, French force. And this ends up creating an escalation to the conflict. Uh, generally speaking, the Seven Years' War is thought of 1756 to 1763. But, you know, it, it, the lead up to it, you know, as, as a lot of conflicts have, you know, in the years before, we're, we're getting up to, to that. You know, and, and George Washington had Native allies with him and a Native chief. And there were uh, a lot of Indians that fought on the French side. The war is on now. There are a number of battles back and forth. Ultimately... The English, you know, the British army goes out with army regulars, and these people, as I mentioned before, they have a great disdain for the colonial forces. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Washington, in particular, for escalating this conflict. Uh, but they um, are ultimately able to prevail. The French colonies fall. Britain takes over Canada for the first time. Uh, this is where the you know, those who, the French colonists who remained, of course, the French. You know, French Canadians, that, that's where they come from uh, to this day, right? <laughs> and uh, France gives uh, Louisiana, right, New Orleans and, and the Mississippi River Valley, uh, their half of it anyway, to Spain so that no one can uh, uh, take that, you know, so that, that's not French territory anymore. Therefore, you know, France does not, you know, Britain doesn't have to worry about it. Obviously, Spain would eventually cede it back to France uh, secretly in the early 19th century when Napoleon was in office and that would trigger the Louisiana Purchase, but more on that another time. Anyway, so um, the, the American involvement in this conflict is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you could look at it and say that the, the mother country sent troops out and they squashed the French and uh, the French, native, the Native American allies of the French, and thus, you know, they, like knights in shining armor, they came and saved the Americans from themselves. Right. Historically, that's a fairly objective and observant view. You, you could argue that. At the same time, a lot of the colonists were proud, patriotic Englishmen, thought to themselves, you know, we really showed the French what we were made of. We went out and kicked their butts. And oh, yes, the mother country helped. Uh, you know, but we went out and kicked their butts. So to hear it from the American point of view, they would say that, you know, they won the war, right? And they would celebrate uh, Colonel Washington for uh, his uh, involvement, you know, as opposed to looking at him as somebody who kind of escalated a conflict that really didn't need to be escalated. But that's uh, here nor there. In any case, after this war, Britain has taken on a substantial amount of debt, and they want to collect some taxes from the Americans to repay this debt. So Parliament just passes the Stamp Act and bam, the Americans are going to pay the Stamp Act and they are going to uh, help repay the debts, right? Now, when we're talking about stamps, we're not talking about the stamps that we have today that we, we stick to things. We're talking about it like an official seal, a stamp that you, you put on official letters, documents, transactions, you know, uh, like a notary more than anything. And... Uh, America's just stopped getting the stamp. 
Right. The, the, the protest this. There's a lot of outrage. North Carolina and Massachusetts especially. They want nothing to do with the Stamp Act. And the Parliament's just kind of taken aback. And the king's, what the heck is going on here? What's wrong with these people? Of course they should pay taxes. And this is where people get, all oh, there's a tax dispute. Americans, you know, said no to taxes. And then we declared independence. And now we tax ourselves to death, you know. Um, that's not quite what the dispute's about, though. It would be nice and simple if that were the case. If we just didn't want to be taxed, and they taxed us, and we said no. The if you, if you look at the documents of the time, what the Americans were saying, the argument against the Stamp Act and similar problems that the, the British are doing is that they're being imposed by Parliament. Whereas... The people in the Americas think that as English gentlemen with proper liberty, you know, according to the English Constitution, they have local governments, right? They have these colonial governments. Why aren't those being respected? Go to the colonial governments and ask them to raise taxes and collect the local taxes. And then when people violate the law, punish them in courts in the Americas and send them back to Europe to be tried for violating the law, right? These things seem awfully unfair to people who believe very strongly in the English Constitution, the British Constitution, you know, and very strongly in the idea of English liberty. Right? Nobody's talking about independence. They're just saying, we want you to respect our local governments. And the king is having none of this. Parliament is having none of this. They don't want to hear it. And you have some people, like the hero of the Seven Years' War in, in political terms, William Pitt, uh, who are saying, no, no, come on, guys, Let, let's just let's just work with the colonists. Let's work this out. They're our friends. They're our cousins. They're, you know, our, our, we're, we're, they're Englishmen. Let's treat them with respect. Let's just let them have the, uh, the thing. And the king, of course, very much like Charles before him, uh, is obstinate. He just wants his authority. You will respect my authority and that's it. I don't want to hear any more of this nonsense about constitutionalism and, and you know, your rights and your, your colonial governments, okay? I'm the king. I'll tell you what's going on. You do it, all right? Are you starting to see where the dispute is here? That's not how Americans live. That is not the case in America anymore. Political decisions in America are made at the community level as much as possible, and when not possible there, by the colonial assemblies, Right? This idea that someone can just come and impose something, that doesn't work. And then, you know, the Navigation Acts. Now the colonies are restricted in whom, with whom they can trade and how they can trade. Uh, certainly, you know, there's a value if you're a colony in selling to the mother country because, you know, there's always a market there. But look, if, if my tobacco is worth, you know, let's say uh, $6, $6 a pound in Britain and it's worth $8 a pound in Spain... Why wouldn't I sell it to the Spanish, right? I make more money. Well, you're not supposed to sell it to the Spanish. You're a colony. You're supposed to sell it to the mother country, right? You're lucky you're getting paid for it in the first place. Uh, but, you know, while they tried to limit that trade, you really can't. I mean, the Americas are so vast. How are you going to enforce that? Spanish ships would come into American ports and people would sneak goods aboard uh, around the custom agents, you know, and then those, you know, those goods would make their way to market and people would... You know, they'd make their money. So the important part here is these Americans feel like they have liberty, like they have uh, freedom. They're living this life of equality and social equity and freedom and all of this good stuff. And Parliament is imposing upon them all of these strictures, 
without any say. There are no representatives in Parliament for Massachusetts, right? If you live in, in Kent, if you, if you live in Cheshire, if you live in Umbria, right? If you live in Wales, Cornwall, uh, you have a member of Parliament. Scotland has a Parliament, right? It's not the, the at this point they uh, they have just united. Uh, Scotland gives a, you know, in the act of union, Scotland gave up its separation, uh, its status as a separate kingdom and joined parla uh, the British Parliament. So now, you know, there are Scottish representatives in Parliament, in, in the English Parliament, the British Parliament, right? But there are no representatives from the Americas, right? We're representative by our colonial assemblies, and that's what we want respected. The dispute here is very fundamental. It runs very deep, and there is... While there is room for compromise, you can start to see the positions here that they're taking. The king says, I have divine right to rule. I have authority. Parliament has authority. You'll do what I tell you. And you'll like it, right? And you can understand where the king's coming from, right? He's King George III. And who the heck are you? Who's this, who's this John Hancock? Who cares? Who's Ben Franklin? Oh, okay, he's kind of a, a, kind of a superstar. He's going to, okay, but I'm King George. You're going to do what I tell you. Meanwhile, Americans are there and like, I'm not going to let my neighbor tell me what to do. I'm not going to let my neighbor tell me what church I'm going to go to. I'm not going to let my neighbor tell me whom to sell my crops to. And I'm not going to let my neighbor tell me whether we're going to build a road or not. We'll make those decisions together. You know, I'm, if, we, if we levy taxes, we get together as a community at our town hall. We argue about it. We debate about it. We hear all the voices and thoughts. And then we make a decision. And we don't have some king coming and telling us how we're going to live. These are diametrically opposed positions. They are incompatible. And while, like I said, there's, there's some room for compromise, the king could have given in just a little to the colonists and said, okay, okay, fine. Have your colonial assemblies collect the taxes and uh, we'll, you know, we'll work with you guys. You know, we'll respect your, your liberties and, and your concepts. You know, it would have left the door open for him to impose authority at other times, but at least it would have solved the crisis in the short term. But the king, no, I'm, I'm king. You'll do what I tell you. Uh, and, and parliament will tell you what to do. And the Americans are saying, no, we live and we have liberty. We have freedom. We're not going to let you tell us how to live. Get back from the break. This conflict will escalate. I don't know if I sound like the deep and pensive sort uh, in these podcasts, but I am actually something of a poet, and I do enjoy writing poetry. I recently published a book of poetry, Dark Recesses of the Mind. In Dark Recesses of the Mind, I write a lot about uh, depression, about feelings, about uh, childhood trauma, and the feelings that we're left with during our lives. I also uh, play a little bit with Japanese poetic styles and uh, some other poetic forms. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm fond of Shakespearean poetry and, and various uh, classical poets and what have you, uh, Persian poets like Rumi and so on and so forth. So I, I've written a lot of interesting poetry uh, that is uh, unique. If you're interested in poetry, please check out my book, Dark Recesses of the Mind. Uh, just Google the title and you'll be able to find someplace that you're able to buy it. Dark Recesses of the Mind by Isaac Kite. <laughs> Uh, at a certain point in this process, uh, you know, when the, when the uh, First Continental Congress meets in 1774, and they've been disputing back and forth now, there's been a lot. 
uh, they send <clears throat> a declaration of rights to the king and asking the king to respect certain rights, acknowledging that they have them, uh, you know, and uh, arguing that they should be treated with greater respect. And the king, you know, refuses even to receive it. And he basically says, look, now the die is cast. Either, you know, we have authority or they have. You know, either they prevail, we prevail or they prevail. And, and so he, he just takes this to the point where, you know, he's, he's in charge and uh, he's just going to put his foot down. So, uh, you know, you look at this dispute and you think to yourself, um, what's the best way to resolve this dispute? I'm King George. I'm looking at the situation. Uh, these colonists are not doing what I tell them to. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not being too radical. I mean, they're just saying, look, you know, we have rights and this kind of thing. Uh, we get the same kind of nonsense out of Parliament and people like William Pitt. Okay, you know, I've heard all this before, but I want them to do what I tell them. So if you're George III, what do you do? Right? What, how are you going to answer this situation? And you think about it really hard and you say, I know the best thing to do. I know a way that we can all get what we want, that the king can win, that everybody will be happy, right? This is, this is the best way to solve this problem. Absolutely. It, we've got it right here, right here in the shoebox. It's brilliant. It, it'll, it cannot fail. We'll send troops to the colonies. I mean, soldiers, right? Uh, guns, right? Authority. What could, be, what could be more authoritative than lobsterbacks, right? Staunch, tough British troops marching with their, their guns, their red coats and in and, and proper formation, right? English troops, that'll teach those Americans. Now they'll do what I tell them. Because, you know, sending in the troops always helps in situations like this. And as these troops arrive, the colonies are required to quarter them. <laughs> oh, it just, it gets better and better. It gets better and better. So here we have these Americans who believe in freedom and liberty, and you have to force people to become the county sheriff because nobody wants to be the one who has to enforce the law. And, uh, you know, there's all this, you know, people just doing whatever they want, and these troops show up. Oh, that's brilliant. God, George, that's brilliant. That's the best way. Obviously, that was the right way to handle this situation. Not seek a political solution, not seek a compromise, not, uh, not you know, don't, don't, don't throw them a bone. Just send troops. If you can see me now, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, of all the possible solutions you could pursue, if you understood what was going on in America at the time and what the Americans were saying, because they're telling the English, you know, the British, they, look, we, we, we live free here. We have this kind of thing. But they're living it. They believe it down in their bones. This is not stuff that's just trivial, like, you know, uh, oh, you know, we really want you to work through the, col the colonial assemblies because that's just the best way. No, no, no. We know. We, I know Parliament has authority. No, we really want you to work through the. No, it's we live this way. This is our culture. This is our society. This is liberty. And that. Now I've been able finally to describe what is the American ideology of liberty. It's this English republicanism, all of these ideas of, of liberty and uh, life, liberty and property, or the pursuit of happiness, as Thomas Jefferson is just about to write. He's about to ink that with the quill here. Uh, and um, it, it's all that good stuff. Plus, <clears throat> living out here with the Native Americans, and you know what? You know, the, the Mohawk, the Seneca, uh, the Cherokee, the, all these tribes, they have these ideas about 
people being uh, free and that, uh, that men rule their own lives and that no man tells another man what to do. You can suggest, you can, you can, you know, if, if all the men generally agree that you should be behaving, you know, look, Joe, we just really don't think you should treat your wife that way. Uh, then you might want to back down. Okay. But nobody's going to come over and, and force you, right? We're not, we're not coercive, right? And, you know, you might, you know, there, there were social exiles or people who were excluded socially because uh, other people disagreed with their moral uh, values or what have you. But again, not arrested, not coerced, right? We're not going to use force of arms to force people to live a certain way. We don't have to like it, but they're going to live how they want to live. And most of us will live, you know, what we consider to be good values. This is the American ideology of liberty. And Americans now believe in it fundamentally. It's now somewhat religious. It's becoming a very powerful ideology. As these tensions grow, people start talking about this stuff more. And as they start talking about it, they start realizing we believe in this stuff. At a certain point, when uh, Patrick Henry is going to stand up in the, in the Virginia state legislature and say, give me liberty or give me death. Wow, this man believes in this idea so strongly, he's willing to die for it. Now, we really come a long way here, right? This is, this is where all this stuff leads. And again, the people, they just have no idea. They really have no concept. They had no idea what they were walking into. They thought, you know, we'll send some troops over there. The Americans will start to behave themselves. This will all sort itself out. They'll just do what we tell them. Uh, and then they say, hey, you know what, we're... We're going to create this, this tea monopoly and we'll sell them tea and we'll make some money off of that, right? Because, you know, what could go wrong? And the tea shows up in the harbor and Americans dress up as Mohawk Indians and go and dump the tea into the, into the harbor, right? Uh, you know, here's, here's the tea party. So, uh, you know, this, this is, these are the, the intolerable acts. You know, the, these Americans are, you know, they're, they're you know, just resisting the authority of the crown and this kind of thing. Well, of course they are. They believe very strongly in liberty. And it's necessary to understand that ideology. It's necessary to understand where it came from ideologically, you know, intellectually, right? And Spinoza, Cook, Hobbes, Locke, all of this, this stuff, the English constitution, English republicanism, all of that, to understand where all of this comes from. And most importantly, as Clinton Rossiter noted in his book, it has become reality in America. Americans are living this now. And they've been living it for decades, and they're not about to give it up. This is a really good thing. This is something worth dying for, apparently, because Patrick Henry said so. Right? And a group of men soon will meet in Philadelphia and commit high treason against the crown. Because they believe so strongly in these ideas, you know, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. So much so that we're going to sign our names to a document if, you know, we will, we will win together or surely hang together, right? Um, you know, they, they knew, they knew that, that they, uh, they were putting their lives on the line here. Uh, and this is, this is where this comes from. And... Liberty will, you know, go forward from there. There's going to be some new ways that the idea expresses itself. But here it has begun, okay? 
it's an incredible thing that's happened in just this episode, just talking about it. Uh, I'm at a loss for words to describe how far we came from the England of the medieval period that I started to describe and and the conflicts between the king and and the parliament and, and all of that in previous episodes up to the point where Americans are living this liberty and they believe in it. And the more the British push, the more Americans talk about this idea and realize that it's a good thing and realize that they love it, that this is their, how they believe now <laughs> to the point of declaring independence, right? But up to this point, up to the, the Declaration of Rights in 1774 and, and the Boston Tea Party and all of this stuff, really what we've been debating here is within the British system. You know, we want our rights protected as, as English gentlemen. Do the Americans have a case? Yes and no. Mostly no. Uh, yes, they have the case that we have this idea that, that Englishmen are not ruled by divine right of, of the king, right? Uh, Louis XIV does not exist in the English system. Uh, Charles I and Charles II tried to rule that way to a certain extent. It just didn't work. Uh, this, this divine right of kings, absolutist monarchy, they were having none of it. Um, so, to a certain degree, the Americans are right about that. To a certain degree, however, a lot of English people are sitting here listening to all of this and they don't understand it. Like, what are you people talking about fundamental liberties? You know, you know, the, the, you know they're, they're asking in, in Parliament, there's a great debate, William Pitt's involved. And, and uh, those arguing for the king's position say, you know, when were these colonies emancipated? When were they made free that they should... The, the, the independent that they should talk to us this way and then demand these rights of us, right? And, and William Pitt gets up to speak and says, you know, the gentleman, the right honorable gentleman asks, when were they emancipated? And I ask you, when were they enslaved? When were they made slaves? This is his words exactly, but, but I'll tell you, Isaac speaking to you now, when were they enslaved, right? And, he, and so he's, he's trying to draw this point out. Yes, they're pushing for ideas that are a little bit farther than we've ever gone before. A little bit radical, okay. You know, there, there's something different going on over there. But they're not slaves, right? These are not, these are not you know, subjugated men that we should just go out and send troops to force them to pay taxes that we ourselves impose, right? And so there are a lot of merchants and a lot of people, especially the merchant class, I should say, there are a lot of people in Britain, um, uh, Edmund Burke, uh, William Pitt, a number of these, this sort of growing class of more temperate leaders in in Britain that that are looking forward to uh, more uh, collegial empire, let's just say, a a nicer, kinder, gentler Britain. And uh, they're sitting here like, you know, okay, so the colonists are pushing it a little bit, but come on, let's let's make a deal. Let's work this out. They're Englishmen like us. We're, you know, we're we'll, we'll work with them. Let let them let them have their delusions, and let's just work away around this. And the king is not having any of this. He's sending troops. He wants his authority respected. I'm in charge here. You'll do what I tell you, and that's just not going to fly. And the king pushing it to the point where even he says, the die is cast. Either they will prevail or we will. Right? That's, that's pushing it right up to the brink. There's going to be a fight here. Right? And there is. The shot heard round the world. 
Uh, and all of that I will uh, take up in the next episode. But now I've had the opportunity to define what is American liberty, where it comes from, how it came into being, its ideological underpinnings and intellectual underpinnings, uh, its origins in Western civilization. I, it's been a lot to get here. And I hope you can hear the excitement. I, I love this stuff. This is, this is great stuff. This is where America came from. Right? And, and all of this before the Declaration of Independence. Oh, there's so much to come. So much to come that defines what America is and how it works and all of that. As we start to define ourselves, we start to pull it together, write our constitution, build our nation, develop our society, and, and decide what kind of country America is going to be. And we start looking around like, okay, we believe in this liberty and freedom and, and all of that kind of stuff. But um, that man over there is in chains. Like, you Virginians do understand that that man is in chains. Like, if he tries to leave the plantation, you whip him. You tell him where to go, right? And just because his skin is black doesn't necessarily make him any less a man. And the Virginians are sitting there, oh, well, these are our property, and, and this is our prosperity. And, you know, uh, you know Thomas Jefferson, oh, we've got the wolf by the ears, you know, kind of going in a, in a Roman, <laughs> using you know, Roman language there. You know, it's, it's a bad thing, but we've, we've got to hold on to it. We've got to keep, maintain power. If we don't keep the slaves, then, then they're going to rise up against us and this kind of nonsense. And, you know, poppycock. Nonsense. Uh, but Americans are going to start to grapple with these things, right? And even within our own society, like, okay, so, you know, we, we have all this liberty and freedom. But, um, you know, if, we're, if, if there's liberty and freedom, that means equality for the Catholics, too, right? And for the Jews, right? And some people are like, no, 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 we don't want to. So we're going to have to talk about this stuff. We're going to have to develop this stuff. Uh, who's in, who's out? What does liberty mean? Uh, are we going to tolerate slavery? Big questions that are going to need answering. And some of those are going to be answered violently. In, in the greatest war America ever fought, right? Uh, more Americans died in the American Civil War over the questions like slavery and freedom and what kind of country we're going to be. More men in, and women, more Americans died in that conflict than have died in all the other conflicts put together at this point, to this day. Uh, we, we've killed more of each other settling out what liberty means than we've lost in our conflicts with other peoples. And uh, that, is, that is an amazing reality there. So there's, there's a lot more to come. And then there's the big question, where do the Native Americans fit in this? Uh, we believe in liberty. We, no problem with these people out there living on their land and what have you. And, and you know, they can go do what they're, they're doing. Oh, hey, did, did you hear there's gold in the Black, Black Hills? And Let's go get that gold. Wait, 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 wait. We have a treaty. Like, that land belongs to the Sioux. No, 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 no. <laughs> that land belongs to us now, right? And uh, if we don't like it, we'll just send the army in to, to go whack those people, right? There are, there are a lot of problems that arise later on as we try to uh, grow as a nation. And we'll have some growing pains. We'll suffer some scars. There will be some scars on the soul of America. Uh, from the Trail of Tears uh, to, you know, the conflicts with the, the Lakota uh, and, and all over the place. But... At the same time, we will develop the kind of country that has become a nation where, looking back on our history, we can stand here very proudly and say, we did our best and we have advanced the cause of freedom. We decided at a certain point to end slavery and to create rights, to establish in our constitution the extension of rights to all men. And then we gave women the vote and it's, we've slowly established rights for women. 
and we've slowly expanded our definition. We've we've tried to come to some kind of uh, some agreement with the Native Americans, usually pretty harshly and and usually not not kindly. Uh, but you know, we tried. We've tried different things to do, and and you know, best of intentions. Uh, I'll talk about that uh, uh, again another time. Uh, and we've we've done our best to create the kind of society that really reflects well on liberty, on our ideology. But as with all things, ideologies are an ideal. And they do not always reflect the reality. But we are going to make that reality change to the point where today we have the most tolerant, open-minded, and free society in the history of mankind. And you get all these people, oh, in Europe, they do their own. We have the freest, most prosperous, and most... Uh, uh, tolerant society in the history of mankind right here uh, in ways that, that people can't even begin to imagine because uh, I'll, I'll describe them more. But, you know, in Europe, a lot of even today, a lot of very old ideas still persist. Your economic mobility is still largely tied to your, your family life. You know, if your father was a uh, was a waiter, you're going to be a waiter. And if you're really lucky and you work really hard and you get a good education, you might be a restaurant manager, maybe. Uh, but you're not going to be a CEO, right? No, CEOs, you know, their parents were executives and, and uh, you know, people, people higher up on the social ladder than you. you know, to this day, these are the kinds of things that, that happen in Europe. In America, you can come here from another country and end up running a massive empire like Elon Musk. We don't even care. You know, we don't care what your race is. We don't care uh, pontificating my, you know, this, this, this wonderful thing, but this is American Liberty. Uh, and it's come to a head, right? The reality of it has brought it to a head with the King. People are now having to write this down and talk about it. What is this Liberty? Is this worth fighting for? Uh, and you know, radicals are going to start pushing now for independence because if the crown will not respect us and our rights and our liberties, then let's just have off with all of it. No more, no more kings, no more noblemen, no more parliament, no more, no more England, no more Britain, right? How about just us? How about we Americans just, we'll just live our way. And you look around the colonies, like there, there are the beginnings of an independent nation. I mean, there's not a lot of manufacturers. There's uh, no means of manufacturing weapons. So you look around and there's, there's, a lot that needs to be done before America could be called an independent nation. But we're going to get there and, and rather rapidly. So, uh, but it is, it is this conflict with the King that draws out that ideology and then begins people thinking, you know what? We're, we, we need just to be our own country. And that kind of radical notion goes there. Uh, when John Adams reached the, uh, the continental Congress, the second, Continental Congress in 1776. Now at this point, and I'll, I'll go into this in the next episode, we're already in a full-fledged war with the British in, in the Americas. And uh, he goes to this, to this Continental Congress, and he says when he got there, uh, a third were Tories. That means they supported the crown and, and, and being part of Britain. Uh, a third were on the fence, and a third were true blue. So even at the point, we were talking, oh, history's inevitable. America was going to declare an independence. At the point where John Adams first shows up at the Continental Congress, there's a lot of people still on the fence that aren't too sure about this independence thing. About a third are patriots. About a third still want to stay with Britain. And there's a third in the middle who are debating back and forth. And it'll be the argument to convince them 
that's going to have to go forward from there. And so, American liberty is going to face its first test in uh, conflict with the mother country uh, for its independence. And with that, I will say, as always, everyone has value. You have value. Everyone was made in the image of their creator. Uh, and uh, that means we all matter. We all have inalienable rights or unalienable rights, however you want to put it. Uh, and, and we all can make a difference. And uh, that means you have value. You have value to me at the very least, uh, even if you don't see it.